Good morning, church family, and a happy Palm Sunday to you all. Before we get to the sermon this morning, I just wanted to take a moment to point out that a year ago at this time, we, Faith Bible Fellowship Church, were not meeting in person. Instead, church leadership was left scrambling to figure out how to record a sermon, how to send out an order of service, and really just how to function as a church body in the midst of a pandemic. Looking back a year later, first off, I am so thankful for such a graceful congregation, but even more than that, when I look around at our church body today, I mean, I can't help but be in awe of how loving and how faithful and how good our Heavenly Father has been in sustaining us and keeping us through this wild season of ministry and of life. As I say this with certainty, church, our God His ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, for he is God and he is good. Amen, church? With that said, let's hear the word of our loving and faithful and eternally good God this morning, shall we? For this morning, we will be in 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, or what will be, Lord willing, our second to last sermon in the epistle of 1 John. Now, over the past two weeks, we have seen the Apostle John focus on the testimony that God himself has borne concerning his son, Jesus Christ. For as John initially wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, that the water and the blood, or that the baptism and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, that both bore witness to the fact and displayed to the world that Jesus is truly the Christ and the Son of God. However, as profound and as absolute and clear as those two testimonies were, God also in his mercy bore witness, verse 8, via the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who also inwardly testifies to the children of God that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. However, it is one thing, church, for God to testify this truth to the world and to his children. However, it is another thing, church, for someone to respond to this testimony. Because for someone to simply reject the very testimony that God himself has borne concerning his son, it is, as John writes in verse 10, to ultimately call God a liar. And to not have the son, in verse 12, to not have the gift of eternal life. However, on the flip side of that, if someone does respond to God's testimony and believes in God's testimony and personally confesses God's testimony themselves that Jesus is exactly who God says he is, the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world, it is to then, verse 12, have the gift of eternal life. For it is just that plain, it is just that simple, church. For whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. No ifs, no ends, and no buts about it. However, today the Apostle John, he transitions from God's testimony about Jesus Christ back to really the main thrust of his entire epistle, which is to help his Christian readers know that they truly do possess the gift of eternal life. For if there is a thesis verse for the entire epistle of 1 John, it would likely come from 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which reads, I, John, write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
For John is serious, church, about his Christian readers, knowing without a shadow of a doubt and resting in the fact that they do indeed possess the gift of eternal life. Which takes us to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, church, which is this. Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then you can have confidence that you possess the gift of eternal life, and that God will answer your prayers according to his will. Christian, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, then you can have confidence that you possess the gift of eternal life, and that God will answer your prayers according to his will. Thus, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17. And if you do not have a Bible with you this morning, or do not own a Bible, that is okay, because please know there is one with your name on it located in the chairs in front of you. Let's please feel free to grab it and to turn to page 1023 and follow along as we hear the word of God together this morning. Again, our text this morning is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 17, where the Apostle John, he writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, Lord, how good it is to gather this morning as the church, as the body of Jesus Christ, Lord, to build each other up in Christ's likeness and to worship a God who is good. Father, we can see your power this morning as we drive in with the rain coming down and the winds blowing. Father, you are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. You are the creator. We are the creation. And yet you have given us your very word. Father, I pray that you open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts this morning to your word. Let us receive your word this morning with all of our heart. And Father, I pray for help this morning as I deliver this message. I pray that I speak truth to these dear individuals. I pray you give me the words to speak, to speak with clarity, with boldness, with love, with conviction, and above all else, in a way that is glorifying to you. Father, it is okay if we look like a fool in the eyes of men. If you are being glorified this morning, use us however you see fit. I pray that our offering this morning is glorifying to you, God. Use us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our first of two points this morning is this. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they can know that they possess the gift of eternal life. 
Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they can know that they possess the gift of eternal life. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know that you have eternal life. Church, we know and are certain of a lot of things in this life. For I know that my name is Wesley Howard Bunting. I know that I am 34 years of age. I know I am the husband of Elizabeth Joe Bunting, the father of Theo James Bunting, Simon Wesley Bunting, and Gloria Joe Bunting. I know that I am the son of Richard and Denise Bunting, the brother of Joseph and Amy Bunting. And I know that I live at 675 Woodland View Drive and the pastor at Faith Bible Fellowship Church and have been since November 18th of 2019. For I know and am certain about those things in my life. And I bet, church, there are numerous pieces of information that you are certain of as well. However, when you think about the things that you are most certain about, church, is the assurance of eternal life one of them? Now, if you haven't guessed yet, the Christian's assurance of eternal life, it is a big deal to the Apostle John. And it's a big deal because when John wrote this epistle, he understood that his Christian readers were battling a significant and powerful enemy. An enemy, my friends, who goes by the name of doubt. And as I have previously shared with you all, within the historical context of the epistle of 1 John, there were individuals who were at one time part of the church community in which the Apostle John wrote this epistle to who unfortunately started denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and that it was only through the shedding of Jesus' blood that one could be forgiven of their sin and thus receive the gift of eternal life. And because of these heretical denials, they left the church. However, they did not go quietly or peaceably, but they instead formed a gang of heretical teachers and preachers, if you will, who went around to all of the churches in this community and tried to deceive them and confuse them and convert them over to their own heretical beliefs. And thus confusion and concern and doubt broke out within this community of Christians. For they were hearing over and over and over again from these haughty and egotistical false teachers that this Jesus, the one in whom they have put their faith in, that he wasn't really God in the flesh. And thus the Apostle John, he wants his Christian readers, after they finish reading this epistle... To not be doubtful or insecure or uncertain. To not be unsure or unstable or unclear. To not be skeptical or confused or faltering. But instead to be confident and to be assured that Jesus really is the Son of God, God in the flesh. And if that they believe in the name of the Son of God, then they also, without a shadow of a doubt, possess the gift of eternal life. And thus John writes in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now what exactly are these things in verse 13, so that we can know that we have the gift of eternal life? And overall, John seems to be referring to what he has referred to throughout his entire epistle. For John has repeatedly offered his Christian readers tools of evaluation or test, if you will, so that they can know 
and be confident and be assured that they are indeed the children of God and possess the gift of eternal life. For John has made it clear throughout this epistle that you can know that you have truly been born of God if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If you characteristically keep the commandments of God and if you love sacrificially the children of God. For that is proof, that is evidence, that is confirmation in the here and now that you indeed have been born of God and possess the gift of eternal life. For that is John's goal here in verse 13. For he is writing exclusively to those who believe in the name of the Son of God. Not to those who left the church. Not to those who denied that Jesus is God in the flesh. Not to those who do not keep the commandments of God. Not to those who hate the children of God. Not John is not focused on them. For John's focus here is on the believer, the Christian, on those who believe in the name of the Son of God. And it is John's desire here for their faith to be strengthened, their doubt to dissolve, and for their confidence to remain secure no matter what these false teachers are saying or promoting around them. However, church, even with these true and accurate and verifiable evidences that we have been given in the very word of God, That those who have truly been born of God believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They obey the commandments of God and love the children of God. Similar to John's original audience, we as Christians still struggle with feelings of insecurity. Feelings of doubt. Feelings of uncertainty concerning whether or not we are truly saved. Thus, if that is you this morning, Christian... Then lovingly let me ask, where exactly are you placing your trust to determine if you are truly saved? In the word of God or in your feelings? In God's word, which is flawless and always proves true, Psalm 18. In God's word, which equips us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3. In God's word, which endures forever, Isaiah 40. Or in your feelings? In the heart of man, which is deceitful above all things, which is desperately sick, and thus who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. Now, church, in no way am I saying that our feelings aren't important. For our feelings and our emotions and our psychological makeup, they are truly a gift from God. However, church, we as Christians, we walk by faith, not by our feelings. For our feelings, church, did not save us. Therefore, our gift of eternal salvation, it is not based on how we feel when we wake up in the morning. It is not predicated on our emotions after a rough day at work, and it does not ever rest on our mental state, our psyche, or on our sensations. For our never-ending, never-changing, always and forever status as a child of the Most High God and our promised gift of eternal life that is based and predicated and rest on what the Word of God says. And what the word of God says is that eternal life is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 1 John 5. And that whoever believes in Jesus Christ has eternal life, John 3. And that whoever comes to Jesus Christ will never, ever, ever be cast out, John 6. No matter what your deceitful heart or your feelings might try to tell you, church, because Christian, if you believe in the Son of God, obey the commandments of God, and love the children of 
God. That is emphatically, unequivocally, and undoubtedly proof in the here and now based on the very word of God itself that you have been born of God, that you are a child of God, and have passed out of death into eternal life via faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Thus, Christian, let your confidence rest this morning, not in your subjective or arbitrary or whimsical feelings, but instead let it rest in what God's word has declared. For as the jolly German reformer Martin Luther wrote, feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. Though all my heart should feel condemned for want of some sweet token, there is one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. I'll trust in God's unchanging word till soul and body sever. For though all things shall pass away, his word shall stand forever. For the word of God which stands forever and ever, church, it has declared to you that whoever believes in the Son has the gift of eternal life. Thus rest in the word of God this morning, church, a word that shall stand forever. Which brings us to point number two this morning. Those who are born of God, they can also have confidence that God will answer their prayers when they pray according to his will. Those who are born of God, they can also have confidence that God will answer their prayers when they pray according to his will. Verses 14 through 17. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. In short, brother Christian, sister Christian, not only can we be a people confident about our status as the children of God and our gift of eternal life, but we can also be a people confident that our heavenly Father will hear and answer our prayers. For as John writes in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Church, most researchers believe that there are approximately 2 billion self-professing Christians out there on this earth. And thus, at any given moment, millions upon millions of God's children could be praying to him. And yet, God, he never gets overwhelmed by our prayers, never gets distracted during our prayers, and never zones out in the midst of our prayers. For our God, the God of the universe, he actually hears us and is attentive to us, Christian. And thus, as John writes in verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the request that we have asked of him. Meaning, our God, he not only hears us as the children of God when we pray, but he also answers our prayers if, verse 14, we ask anything according to his will. Which makes perfect sense, church. That our God will only answer our prayers and give us that which we request of him if we ask according to his will. Because our God, he is a good, good father. 
He will not give us a stone if we ask for bread, nor a serpent if we ask for fish. Thus, if we ask for something that is foolish or dangerous or could cause us to sin, God, who always has the best interest of his children in mind, he isn't going to give it to us. As Matthew Henry put it, we often ask that of God, which would do us harm if we had it. He knows this, and therefore he does not give it to us. When the Lord does not give us what we want, let us remember that it is probably because what we want would be harmful to us. Even God's no to us is evidence of his great love to us. However, church, as we grow in Christ-likeness, our prayers will become less and less focused on our will be done and will begin to more and more emulate the prayer of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who said, thy will be done. For Michael Green, he illustrated it this way. He wrote, When children first start to color, they often have two problems. First, they might choose colors that are inappropriate. And secondly, once the colors are chosen, they have a difficult time keeping the colors within the lines. However, as they mature and keep on coloring, they learn to stay within the guidelines and to choose the appropriate colors, thus resulting in a very satisfying picture. Now, as the children of God, our prayer lives often resemble that of a child's coloring. At first, we don't know what to pray for, nor do our prayers stay within the guidelines of the will of God. However, as we mature and continue praying, we begin to pray for the right things and to stay within the guidelines of God's will, resulting in God giving us the things in which we request and thus leading to a very satisfying prayer life for the Christian You see, church, our Heavenly Father, he loves to give good gifts to his children. I mean, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans chapter 8. Thus, if we as the children of God pray according to the perfect will of God, a will that is good and holy and God-glorifying, then God will give us that which we ask of him. Thus, pray confidently, Christian. Get on your knees and pray consistently and boldly and with belief, Christian. For God, the giver of good gifts, he hears and answers the prayers of his children according to his will, always for their good and always for his glory. Which takes us now to verses 16 through 18. Or to some of the more challenging verses in all of the New Testament to interpret. And the reason why specifically verses 16 and 17 are so challenging to interpret is because you have to try to discern who the sinners are in the text. What John means by life and death in the text. What the sins are that John is referring to in the text. And finally, how then are we to pray for those in sin in the text? Nevertheless, based on the historical context of this letter, and based on the fact that we as Christians are to love the children of God, to keep the commandments of God, and to have confidence when we pray to God, it seems to make the most sense that when the Apostle John In verse 16 writes that if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give it to him. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. 
that what John means here is that when we as brothers and sisters in Christ see one of our own, another Christian in the church, committing a sin or living in unrepentant sin or consistently breaking the commandments of God, that if we truly love them, then we must instantly pray for them and ask God to bring about repentance in their life. And we should do this, church, for those, verse 16, who are committing a sin that does not lead to death which really could be any sin that a Christian is struggling with. The sin of pride, the sin of anger, the sin of drunkenness, greed, sexual immorality, whatever. And I say that because I think what we have here, church, is a picture of someone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and thus has received the gift of eternal life, but who is still struggling, like all Christians still do, with some type of sin in their life. And thus, when we see this as a church body, that a brother in Christ, that one of our own, is succumbing to sin, walking in sin, and repeatedly living in some kind of sin, then as those who truly love this brother in Christ instantly, immediately, as soon as possible, we are to plead with God and to ask him to give our brother the grace needed to turn from their sin, to repent of their sin, to mortify their sin, and to seek a way of life that is pleasing to God. For sin, church, does not ever characterize the life of the believer. Instead, repentance, that is the mark of the believer. Obedience, that is the mark of the believer. Following the will of God, for that is what characterizes the life of the believer, not that of sin. For we know, church, verse 18, that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Therefore, as those who have been born of God, church, and to genuinely love the children of God, we are called to fervently and earnestly and zealously pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them walking in sin, that God would convict them of their sin, give them the grace needed to repent of their sin, and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. For that is how profoundly we are to love each other as the body of Christ. However, John also writes in verse 16 about a sin that leads to death, to which he says, I do not pray, I do not say that one should pray for that. Now, unlike the first picture that John painted for us, church, that of the believer who is struggling with sin, this seems to be a picture of an unbeliever. And thus, since it is most likely an unbeliever here who is outside of the faith, outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, quite frankly, any any sin that they commit ultimately is a sin that leads to death. However, more specifically, John seems to have in mind here the false teachers and those who have left the church who vehemently rejected the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who walk in open defiance and disobedience to the commandments of God, and who did not love, but who characteristically hated the children of God. For these are apostates and non-believers who have flat out rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus John writes in verse 16, I do not say that one should pray for that. And what the Apostle John is not saying here is that we should never pray for unbelievers or apostates. He's not saying that. 
Nor is John forbidding here that we pray for those who have openly rejected the Christian faith, turned from the gospel, and denied Jesus Christ to the Son of God. He's not forbidding that either. However, what the Apostle John seems to be communicating to his readers here is although we as Christians can have confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers when we ask him to help our brothers and sisters in Christ to repent of their sins and to keep the commandments of God. On the flip side of that, we can't have that same level of confidence when we pray that the unbeliever should repent of their sins as well. Because it is possible, Christian, that the unbeliever's heart has become so hard and so hostile toward the things of God after years of brazenly rejecting the commandments of God, years of boldly shunning the testimony of God, and years of unequivocally denying that Jesus is the Son of God, that God, Romans 1.24, has simply given them up to the lust and the desires of their heart. And thus, as Daniel Aiken put it, spiritual death is simply their eternal destiny. And therefore, for someone to pray for them in that spiritual state, it is futile and useless, and it will do them no good. Because for those who openly reject the testimony of God, who harden their hearts to the things of God, and who never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, their eternal destiny is that of eternal punishment and wrath at the hands of a holy and just God. Thus, with that being said, we will close this morning, or I will close this morning by addressing the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, I want you to know that although currently and presently the practice of your life is one where you are denying the testimony of God, rejecting the Son of God and dismissing the commandments of God, as cool and as alluring and as attractive as you might think those practices may be, I am telling you, non-Christian, if you were to taste the grace of God this morning, I can promise you its taste would be simply irresistible to your soul. For it is only by grace, non-Christian, that you can be saved. For it is by grace and grace alone that we don't blaspheme or reject or hate the very things of God, but instead believe. Believe that in love and that while we were still dead in our sins, God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save us from our sins. And how did the God-man, how did Jesus Christ save sinners from their sins, you might be wondering? Well, non-Christian Jesus Christ, he lived the life that we could never live. Because unlike us, a people who cannot not sin, Jesus Christ, he lived a life that was without sin, without transgression, and without any offense. For he lived the perfect, the holy, and the righteous life that we could never live. For Jesus Christ kept every aspect, every detail, and every precept of the law, and thus fulfilled perfectly the law of God. For the children of God. Our Jesus Christ, he didn't just come to fulfill the law of God for the children of God. But Jesus Christ, he also came to pay the debt of our sin. For the wage of sin, non-Christian, the cost of sin, non-Christian, it is that of death. And that is exactly the price that Jesus Christ paid on our behalf. For Christ was pierced, crushed, crucified on a cross at Calvary, and died a sinner's death in our place. The righteous Son of God dying as a substitute for the unrighteous. 
And you know what, non-Christian? Jesus Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross, it completely and it perfectly appeased the wrath of a holy God toward his sinful children. Thus, three days later, Jesus Christ, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin, trampling over death, and offering eternal life to all who place their trust in him. Thus, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. Thus let today be the day, non-Christian, that you taste the irresistible grace of your heavenly Father and place your faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. And I can promise you, non-Christian, today will be the day that your sins will be forgiven. For today will be the day that you will be born of God and given the gift of eternal life. Saved, redeemed, and secure eternally in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ. Thus let today be the day, non-Christian, that you place your trust in Christ. And to the Christian who was here today, Brother Christian, Sister Christian, as we looked at verses 16 and 17 this morning, yes, they are not the easiest verses in the world to interpret, and yes, there are some difficulties, and yes, there are some nuances. However, too often as Christians, when we read these verses... We just want to focus on the difficulties and on the nuances and on the exceptions. And we too often miss altogether the point, the thrust, the key in which John wants his Christian readers to take away from this text. Which is that when we see one of our own church walking in sin, a brother in Christ struggling with sexual immorality, a sister in Christ struggling with addiction, a teenager in Christ struggling with foul language or whatever else it may be. Our first response, church, cannot, cannot, cannot be to gossip about them or to condemn them behind their back or to enjoy watching their demise, cheering their collapse, and celebrating their fall. Because if we really love each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and we desire to help each other grow in Christ-likeness and we have a God who we know will answer and hear our prayers according to his will when we pray to him, then what can be more loving, church, that when we see a brother and sister in Christ not keeping the commandments of God, to pray for them, to intercede for them, and to plead with God to give them the grace needed to turn from their sin, repent of their sin, mortify their sin, and to walk humbly with God. And yet one of the first things we so often do when we see sin in our brother's and sister's life is not to pray for them, but is instead to gossip about them, to blab about them, to slander them, and to condemn them behind their backs. And that is not Christian love church. For you see, Christian love church, it goes so far beyond just meeting the physical needs of each other and encouraging each other and sacrificing for each other. For Christian love, it also involves us actively interceding on behalf of each other in prayer. When we are weak, when we are down, when we are struggling to ward off and fight against the lust and the temptations of this sinful world. Therefore, Faith Bible Fellowship Church, 
If you are sitting there this morning thinking, man, I should be praying for others here. But I don't know what sins people are struggling with. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, boy, it would be really nice to have members of my church family praying for me consistently. But I don't think anyone here knows what I'm struggling with. If either of those two are you this morning, Christian, then let me encourage you. Get to know others within this church body. Or, and here's a good one, allow yourself to be known within this church body. Allow yourself to join the fellowship and to be part of this family who wants to love you and pray for you and help you grow in Christ-likeness. Because I am telling you, church, a lone wolf is a dead wolf. But a family that prays together, that is a family that stays together. Thus, let us be a church that is not only active in confessing our sins to each other, but also steadfast in praying for each other. For we have a God church who desires for us to keep his commandments. Thus, if you are struggling with that church, then let me encourage you this morning. Ask your brothers and your sisters in Christ to pray for you, to intercede for you, and to ask God according to his will that you keep his commandments. For that is the very will of our God church, that we as the children of God grow in Christ's likeness together. And thus, church, let us be fervent and zealous and consistent to ask. Thus it is my prayer this morning, Lord, that you give us the courage as a church body to be vulnerable with each other. Lord, it is so easy to conceal our sins and to hide our sins and to pretend that everything is okay in life. However, this Christian life, it can be hard, Father. For the things that we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we do. And that struggle is enough to make any Christian cry out, a wretched man that I am. However, if we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, the prayer of a righteous person, it has great power as it is working. Thus, help us, Lord, to be a loving church, an obedient church, a praying church, and a sin-mortified church. Let us not be quick to gossip and to make light of each other's sins, but to be a church that boldly asks you, God, to empower us to overcome our sins. For that is what family does. For we are not to be a people who rejoice in someone's demise, but instead we are to be a people who rejoice when we see the God of the universe answer our prayers according to his will and empower his saints to repent and to turn from their sin. Thus let us be quick to listen to each other and quick to pray for each other so that we as a church body together grow in the likeness of Christ. For that is the will of our Heavenly Father, a Father who always cares perfectly for His children. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, it takes courage to confess our sins to each other. It takes courage to pray for each other. It takes courage to go out of our way and to help our brothers and sisters in Christ confront their sin, turn from their sin, repent of their sin. And yet, Father, we are called to do it by praying to you. Father, it is your will that we keep the commandments of God. It is never a bad request to ask you to help us to keep your commandments, to help our brother in Christ keep the commandments, to help our sister in Christ keep his, the commandments. 
But, Father, it takes courage to allow ourselves to be known within this body. Father, empower us to do that, I pray. Empower us to go home today and to be faithful in praying for each other. Lord, our desire is that you be glorified with our lives individually, with this body, the church. We want you to be glorified. Thus, help us to grow in Christ-likeness in all that we do. And we pray that you use us in each other's lives to do that as we pray faithfully to you. In Jesus' name.